Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. Where we discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And Kurt, um, this week we're going to be talking about the domain of memory. And as I was thinking about memory this week and um, the things that I understand about it, my memory was drawn to a friend of mine who in this past year uh, passed away. Uh, mm. You've met uh, Chris before, and um, we were we were really good friends, and, and it was very sudden and unexpected that he passed away. Um, and I was, I was sitting and thinking about all of the things that, the little adventures that we went on and just the time that we spent together. And, um, and I, I knew that I wasn't remembering everything. Mm-hmm. And so I stumbled upon our text thread that went back to, it only, for some reason, it stops at like 2016. Mm-hmm. So I know it went further back than that. Um, I guess those memories are kind of lost. So I kind of went through this text thread, mm-hmm. and it was like a journey through our relationship. Um, wow. It was, I, I, I cried at points mm-hmm. and uh, laughed really hard at points. He, he had a, uh, he was a president of a bank, um, mm-hmm. but he he had a he and his wife Eleni had a nonprofit locally here in town that fed and clothed and, you know, um, mm-hmm. underprivileged. And, um, and he had asked myself and, and another friend of ours, uh, Dan, if we would help him make a video for his nonprofit, to which we both said yes before we knew what we were getting into. <laughs> and Kurt had this, or uh, Kurt, Chris had this idea of taking Breaking Bad, the series, and turning it into Serving Bad, right? So the next thing I know, I'm in a hazmat suit in a mobile home (laughs) with Chris and and Dan doing this this Serving Bad bad. uh, videos for, yeah, yeah. And just, there were pictures of that in there, and there were just conversations. And we would, we walked one winter once a week, no matter how cold it was, we met first thing in the morning and we would go into Starbucks and get a coffee. And before we got around the block, the coffee was already cold. That's how, (laughs) that's how cold it was, but it wouldn't stop us. And just all the fun things. And, um, and that those texts really helped me to remember the feelings and, um, the specifics and, you know, the pictures helped. And it was, uh, it was a really great thing to have. I was really happy that I had that. So, Kurt, I'm wondering if that is what our memories are like. Is it like mm-hmm. this this text thread that holds these these things that we can we can draw from, and then and then help us to have these experiences where we can recall what happened? Right. Well, first of all, it's just a beautiful story of how mm. we are able to somehow magically in our mind return, even with the help of a device, with the help of a device, the device can prompt things in our mind that correlates with what we're reading in the text thread. And I'm now not just remembering words from the text. That text thread activates images and sensations. And I I can go back and like, I can, I remember being on the sidewalk with my frozen coffee from Starbucks with my friend as we're walking around in this cold winter. We're able to do this, which of course if you just give it, you know, just a moment's thought, like the whole endeavor of remembering is a rather fantastic thing that the mind is able to do. And you've given one really beautiful example of how that works. We, first of all, tune and turn our attention to something that we want to say that we remember. And then we draw that from our memory bank that we say, and we bring it forward into the present moment when we're having that experience. But even as we're having that experience in the present moment, it still feels like I was back there with Chris having coffee at Starbucks many, many months ago. Amazing. I don't yeah. feel like I'm in 2021. I feel like I'm in, you know, 2017, 2015, somewhere else in the past. And so one of the things that it's important for us to recognize that when we say like, well, memory, like what is it exactly? And there are some Helpful things, I think, for us to describe how it works from a neuroscience standpoint. Is it just the recollection of past events? And are there different forms of memory? And how does that work? And does it matter that we know what those things are? When we talk about it from 
an interpersonal neurobiological perspective, there's this interesting way of thinking about how the brain works. And that is that we are doing things all the time that our brain is in some way, shape, or form paying attention to and encoding so that we can then go back and retrieve it at a later time. In fact, one of the things that's important to say about memory is that there's nothing that we do in the world going forward, whether it's eating my supper, whether it's tying my shoes, driving my car, taking a test, there's nothing that I do that does not involve memory. There's nothing that I do in the future that is not actually a function of some element of a remembered event. And another thing that is important then to pay attention to is that in order, and we'll we'll get to these different kinds of memory and how we encode them and why the different kinds that we're going to talk about today are so important and why they're important for us to know the difference about them, is that our attention, what we pay attention to, is so crucially important because we like to say that what we pay attention to, we remember, and what we remember becomes our anticipated future. The biblical narrative is replete with God's admonition for the Hebrews as they left Egypt to remember, 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 remember. In the day that you enter the promised land, remember the Lord your God, for in the day that you do not, surely you will perish. This notion that remembering goodness and beauty is not just something that's going to happen on its own. We have to actively pay attention to it. And we pay attention to things, as we'll see later, that are emotionally salient, emotionally evocative, like emotionally important to us. And so as you're describing that story with your friend Chris, what's so interesting is that as you're describing it and having met Chris, as you're describing it like, it's not hard for me to imagine being with the two of you. So here you have a memory and you're conveying it to me. And I'm now creating these same image. I'm creating images in my head. Hmm whereby which your memory of beauty and goodness in that relationship, a relationship in which you were also deeply known by each other, that evokes in me this warmth and this beauty and this goodness that I now remember because of the way you're telling this story. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you folks about uh, the Center for Being Known and uh, actually have Kurt tell you about the Center of Being Known. They have an event coming up and uh, I'm excited about it personally. Kurt, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the Center for Being Known and about this event that you have that you're planning. Thanks, Pep. Most of you will not be aware that for a number of years uh, in hibernation has been a small nonprofit organization called the Center for Being Known. And we exist for the mission of being able to create a space where people can come together and be connected. Anyone who really has an interest or a vested stake in what's taking place in life at this intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. And as it turns out, that's not just something that applies to psychotherapy or the mental health field. We believe that this place of convergence of neuroscience and spiritual formation is something that has application deeply in many realms, in fact, every realm of vocational domain that we occupy. So whether you're in church ministry or you're in education or you're running a law practice or an accounting firm or you're a carpenter or you're a truck driver, whatever it is, if you're a gardener or a farmer, whatever it is, we want this to be a space where you can come together and be connected with like-minded people who are asking the questions, how can these questions of neuroscience and spiritual formation speak into my life in practical ways that I can then take away and then apply this and actually even create a community of my own who can both exercise and engage and apply these principles in our own particular domains of life. And to that end, CBK, as we call it, the Center for Being Known, will be having its inaugural annual conference virtually 
on October 22nd, Friday, October 22nd, this coming year, this coming fall, 2021. And we would invite you all to be there. You can find out more information about this by looking online at thecbk.org, thecbk.org. We expect that this is going to be an opportunity for people of a wide range of different communities, different vocational callings to come together to be nourished in this way of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation. In fact, we're going to have four speakers, including myself, four other speakers who will be giving us a window into how they are applying this work, one in ministry, one in education, one in leadership, and one in the field of psychotherapy. Each of them, uh, people that I know personally and that are really skilled at applying this kind of work. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you all to consider doing that again. October 22nd, 2021, our first annual CBK conference called Connections. Please join us there. Excellent. So you can find out more at thecbk.org. And so we know then that, you know, memory from a neurobiological standpoint has a lot to do with the way neurons fire. We can just say that much. That it's not just an accumulation of events that in the brain, when I'm remembering something, if I'm having a conversation with you, I'm having that coffee with Chris, my brain is firing in such a way that all the things that are recording that particular event in all the different ways that my brain is recording it are stored And if I go back later that day, and I'm just like, man, that that was just such a great time walking with Chris in zero degree weather, right? It was just (laughs) a great time. You're reactivating those same neurons again. And the more I remember, the more I turn my attention to it, the more I activate those memories again and again and again. And so from a neuroscience standpoint, we would say that memory, this is for all of you who who are listening, like memory is that probability with which neurons will fire together in predictable patterns. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. Memory isn't, oh, like what I had for dinner last night. It's not where I went on vacation. It's, yes, of course, it's the probability with which neurons will fire together in predictable patterns. (laughs) But the reason that we emphasize this is that we become, in our anticipated future, those things that we actively and purposefully pay attention to and that we encode. And this is true of all those things in our lives that are beautiful, but it's also equally true that these things, this memory lays itself down when when we have trauma, when we have pain, when we have brokenness. And so this gets us then into, if, if it's true that memory, how it works is really a way that neurons fire together in certain predictable patterns, what's important to know about that then are that we have these two different kinds of memory that we like to talk about. And the first kind is what we call implicit memory. Now, researchers that talk about memory talk about a lot of different forms. We talk about immediate recall, short-term, long-term, permanent memory. We could talk about that. That's that's kind of research. And those are interesting kinds of memory on their own account. We're talking today about two particular kinds, the first being what we call implicit memory. And it's a form of memory that we actually have in process. It's working, it's at work even before we're born. Hmm. And if it's true that memory is a way in which my brain encodes and therefore turns on certain patterns of neurons that fire over and over again every time, It happens that it's the encoding that is important. Implicit memory, we say that word, it's implicit because a couple things that are really important about it. Number one, it doesn't require my paying attention to something in order for it to be encoded. We'll get to explicit memory in just a moment and why paying attention is important, but there are certain ways in which I remember things that I don't actually have to actively pay attention to it in order for it to become encoded. So this form of memory, this way our brain works, is active before birth. And then we don't 
need to pay attention, which means there are certain parts of the brain that are developing. The hippocampus, which enables me to have short-term memory, eventually, it's not online yet, and the prefrontal cortex, the part of my brain that makes me ultimately most human, it's not online yet until about 18 to 24 months of life, that starts to come online. And so for a long time in our early childhood, I am dominated by my implicit memory's capacity to recall things. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, here would be an example. Uh, most people uh, might remember, uh, you, you might remember where you went to school for elementary school. Most people would remember maybe even the name of your elementary school teacher in first grade. You might even remember his or her, who they are. Like I, I, can, I can see Miss McConnell in first grade, Helen McConnell. I see her. I see her putting me on the little yellow can in the front, a little coffee can, discipline. Can you imagine? If you're in trouble, you sit on a small coffee can in front of the class, at the front yeah. of the, or the front of the class, for you know, like for what felt like a lifetime. It probably felt it was probably right. like like ten minutes. But no, we get to sit on the little yellow can. This was right classic Mount Pleasant Elementary School disciplinary tactics. I'll never forget. I hate the color yellow. I hate it. It's an awful color. It's like trauma for my tail end. I just can't <laughs> sitting on a coffee can like that. We remember that. But if we were to ask most people, do you remember when you learned to eat? Now, Pepper, your memory is really good, so you probably do. No, I think. Do you remember when you learned to walk and how that happened? No, probably not. We don't remember these kinds of things because the kind of memory that is required is the kind that does not require direct attention to pay attention to it. I'm just kind of like, learning how to walk. I'm putting food in my mouth and my body starts to remember these things. And so because there's no need for focused attention, a lot of it involves my body remembering things. So there are some things that are elements of this implicit memory that include sensations. I remember sensations. I remember emotions. I remember perceptions. I remember these things that we call mental models. What would that, what would that mean? Like, well, let's say I grew up in Philadelphia. And all I know of a city is Philadelphia. And that when cities are built and maintained, we have a square grid of streets. And this is how, like, we do life. Like, it's just automatic. If you have numbered streets, they just go up and down, and that's how you do it. But if I then am sent to Boston, and I have to figure out how to get around Boston, I'm like, I'm going to be completely disoriented because I'm just used to doing something. Another example of implicit memory would be riding a bike. Hmm. You learn to ride a bike when you're a young kid, maybe, you know, six, seven, eight, ten years of age, or even younger. And once you finally get on the bike, the implicit capacity of your body to behave on the bike is an act that your body remembers all the time without you paying attention to how you ride the bike. In fact, if you ever have an injury and later you have to try to remember how to learn how to ride a bike, it makes things harder because you're having to think when, in fact, your body doesn't need you to think. It just needs to get on the bike and go. Because that's implicit. You didn't really it, have to pay it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And so we have this mental model that we develop about how things are supposed to be. But here would be another example. Let's say that I grew up in a house where every time somebody gets, gets angry, somebody gets hit. And so anytime in my house that somebody raises a hand, violence is, is coming. Well, now I'm in a class and a student sitting next to me raises their hand, and I flinch. Now, there's no rational, logical reason for me to flinch, but my body is remembering implicitly because it senses danger. Even though there's no danger here, they're just raising their hand to answer a question. Nobody's going to get hit, but my body, my sensation, my mental model for what it means for anyone to raise their hand right. doesn't know that violence isn't coming. And so these forms of sensations, emotions, perceptions, mental models, priming is another feature. This priming, this sense, like I remember, right? Like my dad would come home every day from work. He'd get home at about 530. I, and then like, I, I just love my dad. I, I, my, 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 there are many, I mean, our, our, our relationship was not perfect and it was a little complicated at points, but there are many things about my relationship that I loved. And when I was a kid, I was a little kid, I would hear that truck pull in in the back 
and I knew he's coming. And so the way he had to come in the back door, he had to come into this one space where there was this shelf that was about three feet tall that went around that you couldn't see on the other side of it. And so I would hide behind that shelf and he would come in the door and come out and I would jump out. And like, I don't know if it really happened or not, but like he played the game, <laughs> right? He was completely startled. Maybe like, it was uh, maybe it was implicit. Implicit he, memory. Like he had that five built in. days a week. He's like, like <laughs> my gosh, like I can't, I can't. It's implicit. But the priming was when I would hear that truck come in, yeah. I wouldn't even think. I would just go and I would I would hide, hmm. wait for him to come in, and I would jump out. Because the truck is helping me anticipate a joyful reunion between me and my dad when he would get home after, after work. Hmm. But in the same way, we can have other kinds of implicit memory models that go something like this. I have a patient, a couple that I was working with, this was many years ago, and they came in one day for a session after they'd had a the day before they'd had this fight. And they come home from work and they're in the kitchen and they start this argument and one thing leads to another and Brad is his name, and he gets, he, he, he leaves the fight. He just leaves the kitchen. He goes out and gets in his car and takes off, starts driving around the neighborhood. His wife, she's calling him on his cell phone. He won't answer the cell phone, which, of course, is, I would just say to, and, you know, none of us out here really think that this is a good tactic, right? No, yeah, just, just in case you want to know. You, you heard it here. Like, leaving the scene of a fight is, you know, and taking your cell phone and then not answering it. It's not good karma. Pearls of wisdom. Pearls, yes, right. They're <laughs> dropping here, folks. They yes. are. And when I talk with him the next day, when I ask him, Brad, so tell me, tell me what was your experience and what was that like and what prompted you to leave? Well, he would say, I, and he did say, I, you know, I didn't want to do something. I didn't want to say something that I was going to regret. And I thought I was going to regret something. And, you know, in addition, you know, when she gets kind of fired up, like, you know, this does not end well. And I didn't really want to be around when it didn't end well. So I, I, I left. Here's what Brad didn't say. Brad didn't say, I think I was having an implicit memory of what it was like when I was 10 years old and my alcoholic dad would come home in a rage. Hmm. And the only thing I knew that I could do to escape the impending carnage was to get on my bike and ride. And ride he would. And then when he got to be 16, when the rage came, he got in his car and took off. And so for Brad... He wasn't just leaving an argument with his wife. He was remembering by his very action. His very action was a memory. It was an embodied remembrance without him even paying attention to the fact that even though he's fighting with his wife, it's his father who's actually standing behind her in the kitchen. And what's beautiful about being able to then talk about this and bring this implicit memory forward is that he's able to recognize that what he's sensing and imaging and feeling and perceiving and the model that primes him and prompts him and his behavior isn't just this automatic thing over which he has no control. He can begin to link this to his real story in the past in order to make it explicit, which leads us to our next form of memory. Explicit but, but, memory. Bef before yeah, yeah. we go to the explicit yeah. memory, I have a question. So, so... You talked about the student in the classroom who, anytime there was anger, someone raised their hand, someone was going to get hit. He yeah. flinched, right? Right. You talk about um, the guy who, uh, when he was little, took off and rode around in circles on his bike to escape the yeah. anger of his father. Then when his wife gets mad at him years later, he's taken off in the car doing the same thing, right? That's right. Okay. But when you flinch... You probably don't know what you're flinching about, right? You don't. You don't That's necessarily exactly right. know. You don't and so know. You don't know. No. And so, so how? So it it just takes what therapy, or it takes like how do you? How do you it take, it so takes paying lots attention of therapy, to this Pepper. in a way? Well, I need it lots, takes lots I, of therapy. I know that's where you're going. And thoughts of therapy, <laughs> and no, and but, for you more than for most. But so so. As you're telling the story, we know what's happening because you're telling it from the outside and you're, you're explaining to us what's happening. But if you're right. in that, right. you know. Right. So, so one of the things that we did with Brad was to say, let's pause for a second. When have you ever felt like this? 
the way you were feeling with your wife right. before. Well, the last time we had a fight, okay? Do you feel that when you were 20? You ever have an experience when you were 20? Yeah, what about when you were 18? What about when you were 15? When's the first time you remember having that experience? As we'll talk about in our next episode when we talk about narrative, like nobody was there in the home to ask Brad, what's it like for you when dad comes home? Right. And rage is following him in his wake. And because no one asks him, no one is able to direct his attention to the events that are taking place in order for the events themselves to be encoded. All that he's left with is what his brain is encoding that amounts to the emotion and the feeling and so forth. So I tell people it's kind of like this. You go to your child's elementary school play production and you're going to videotape this on your phone. We used to have video recorders. Right. But your video, and when your child is on the stage, you know, you hit your iPhone and you are zeroing in on your child. And that's what you're paying attention to. And while you're watching it, like, you're, it's just your daughter that you're paying attention to. And it's great. And it's all done. And then you come back home and you pop that thing because you want to watch it on the television. And you start to watch this on the television. And suddenly, you see to your right another child trip, fall, and roll off the stage. And you missed it. You, you, you know, you missed it when you're, because you were paying attention to your daughter, as you rightly should have been. It's not like you shouldn't have missed it because you're paying attention to your daughter. Implicit memory is like the video camera. It doesn't miss these things. It encodes things that I'm not even paying attention to that have emotional salience, that have this sense of sensation and emotion and perception. My body's like taking all this stuff in because... When we say something like, well, do you remember uh, where you went for your anniversary last year? And you're like, yeah, I went to this particular restaurant. And you think, oh, I'm just having a a memory of a homogenous thing. One singular, I'm remembering my, you know, my, my anniversary. As if that's what the brain is like. Again, it's that safety deposit box where I like, I have a list of boxes where I keep my anniversaries, right? That's where I keep them. And I just go in the box and I pull out my anniversary. But that's not what the brain does. The brain, when it is encoding things that it's going to remember, it encodes my visual memory, my auditory memory, what I'm sensing in my body. It takes all these things in and it collates them and reprocesses them and then puts them in different places neurally throughout the brain. And so when I want to then go and find them, If that memory has been formed with intention and explicitly, I can bring all of that back together so that I can remember the feeling, the sensations, and the explicit nature of the time travel, which we'll talk about in just a second. The explicit nature of the time travel and bring all that together in a coherent whole in my memory. Now, I think like I'm just having one memory, but the brain is bringing a gazillion number of different things together. In the same way that we'd say, yeah, I listened to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony last night. Well, you did, but what you really listened to was a collection of multiple instrumentalists over a period of time, and your brain is having to go lickety-split, putting in lots and lots and lots of different inputs. You didn't just listen to a single monolithic symphony. You listened to tons of things, a lot of which you're not even paying attention to or aware that you're encoding. And so with all that encoding then comes this next form of memory that we call explicit. And because we are actually making the implicit explicit, and the, 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 the neural networks that are responsible for this don't start to come online until we're about 18 to 24 months of age. Interestingly enough, at about the same time that children begin to develop language, at the same time that my left hemisphere, my logical, linear, linguistic, literal, Hemisphere is coming online, and I give words to things that I'm paying attention to. So explicit memory depends upon the arrival of the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal Mm -hmm. cortex comes online with all that it's able to do. My hippocampus, with all that those cells are able to do, it can enable me to have short-term memory. We were sitting at the lunch table a number of years ago with a friend of ours with his kindergarten-year-old daughter, and 
I asked her, so are, are you in school? And of course, they're visiting with us because they're on spring break. They're from Philadelphia. They're visiting their spring break. And she said, no, I'm not in school. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's a literal sense. I'm not in school. I'm right. here. I right. don't remember that, oh, yes, I'm in school. Right. I'm not in school. And in the same way, though, this kind of comes on little by little, fits and starts. And at some point, I start to have the viscerally felt sense that when I remember where I went for my anniversary dinner, I have the sense of what one year ago feels like Mm -hmm. compared to one week ago. It feels different because the neurons that are responsible for my perception of time travel are able to grade that so that I know that what I had for lunch today is feels very different than what I even had for dinner last night. Not just in my awareness of the facts, but my awareness of the time travel that is required to differentiate them. This form of explicit memory, time travel, or what we call episodic memory, that there are different episodes of my life, begins to come on along with what we call factual memory. Three times two is six. The capital of Ohio is Columbus. These facts. But I'm bringing facts and time travel memory together with implicit memory. And most important is that in order for me to encode these things explicitly, I have to pay attention to them. And this is what can happen. For our friend Brad, the trauma of what happened to him with his father's rage meant that it was too overwhelming for him to actually think about and remember and pay attention to. It's too painful to just sit and imagine what it's like to be in the presence of your father when he's that angry. Or as some of you know, you've had terribly traumatic events, injuries, sexual abuse, physical abuse, any number of different things in which the emotional overload makes it impossible for you to actively pay attention to the event itself. And when this happens, there can be events that I simply don't remember because I am not explicitly paying attention to them. But it doesn't mean that my body won't remember. I took care of a woman once who had been the victim of a rape while she was out running. And her memory of the event itself was all very fuzzy. She remembers having gone out for the run, and she then next remembers kind of coming to her awareness when she's back at her apartment, becoming aware that she was bruised and skinned up and dirty and really, of course, like wounded in in ways unspeakable. Over the course of time, eventually she would go back to running. And every time she got within 150 yards, 200 yards of the space where it happened, she would start to have panic events. Sure. And there was some of her that couldn't, she knew something bad had happened, but she couldn't remember explicitly right down to the micro moment of what had happened because her body was remembering, but her explicit memory had not yet been able to encode it. And these kinds of things can happen to us not only when traumatic events happen, but also when neglect takes place. If I live in a house in which people are not emotionally engaged, it fails to turn on parts of my brain that long to remember my story. And so for Brad and for this other woman that I mentioned, and for so many others, we can have implicit memories that override our capacity to explicitly experience what we think we're supposed to experience. I wrote about in Anatomy of the Soul, I wrote about the story of Elijah, this, this, this strange story in which he has this experience where he is just like, like he's like a, a, a bad dude, like when it comes to the prophets of Baal, right? And he whacks like, like, you know, a couple thousand of them. And within a week, he's running away from Jezebel. Even though he's this like dude, Now he's like a little boy, and you wonder, man, what happened to you such that you are implicitly acting out something, hiding in the desert, when you were just acting like a warrior? Like, what's what's going on between you and this experience with this woman? 
We don't know. And we're not trying to over-psychologize the Bible, but what we're saying is that so much of our lives are driven by our inability to bring our implicit and our explicit memory together in a coherent whole wherein which the parts of our memory that are wounded can find healing. And so how do we do that? I mean, how do we, how do we make them whole? How do we connect the implicit and the explicit? How do we connect them and uh, understand them? Right. Well, I, I think that you know this is where we we've we've talked that uh, in this in this podcast. This is a podcast about being known. Right. And we don't want to be known just for the sake of being known. We are we are being known as the function of being loved. And that process of being known means that we invite people to tell their stories, to tell as much of their story as they can. And for Brad, it was a matter of he could tell me his story with his wife. But he had practiced not paying attention to the story that he had with his father. And so we're going to invite Brad to tell the story. And he could say, oh, yeah, my dad was an alcoholic. That's one way of telling it. But to invite Brad to say what it was like when he was 10 years old was not easy for Brad to do because all the memory would start to come forward eventually. Like he would start to have some memory of what it was like to get close to being 10 years old and sitting in my office with his wife, the heart rate comes back up, the sweat would come, the tears would come. And of course his wife, she knows about the facts. She's known that his dad was an alcoholic, but she's never seen the 10 year old boy until she saw him that day. And suddenly her mercy, her compassion, because she recognizes it's not a 34-year-old man that she's married to who's running away from the argument. It's a 10-year-old boy who's scared for his life. Hmm. But when we invite him to tell the story in a different environment, when we say, look, let's talk about your fear, let's bring your fear into this space, and you know, you all might, who are listening, you might have had experiences with psychotherapy and counseling in which you implement certain kinds of therapeutic intervention, EMDR and neurofeedback, and you know, internal family systems, there's a range of different ways in which we intervene on people's behalf to help people tell their stories more truly, but not into a vacuum. No, right. you're telling our, you we're telling our story to a someone else who their very presence, I mean, you and I have talked about this, Pepper, about the things about yeah. our own stories that we've shared with one another and the moments of healing that I've experienced in naming for you things about my life. That, like, I can't like, like, gosh, like I look up and you're still there. Yeah. And the fact that you're still there means that the implicit part of me that senses and feels the shame and the anguish is now being given a different, literally a different experience because and, I'm being heard and known by someone else who changes that. And so that changes the encoding, right? So, exactly. so you're, you're encoding the love and the understanding and those things. And it, it's, it's got to help that trauma, right? It does. Like, it does. So yeah. much of our experience with faith is the same experience that the people of the Bible had. You know, we may come back to this, and maybe we've talked about this before, but the, the, the story of King David always really kind of captures my attention, and we wonder, you know, here's this guy who's this poet, he's a warrior, he's a prophet in some respects, he's a priest in some respects, he's, he's this kind of like all-encompassing man of the hour for his people. And many of us are familiar with this story that, you know, he has this progressive ascendancy to power. And once he does, and all the different sub-states of Israel are consolidated, he has this moment on his palace when everything is well. And then he sees her. He sees Bathsheba. Yeah. And things all go to seed in a hurry. And one wonders... How is it that a guy who has so much together, how is it this, that, this, that this happens? Except that when you look back at David's story, you see some things. You see that when Samuel came calling to Jesse, David's father, and said, bring all your sons. 
because one of them is going to be anointed this day as king over Israel to replace Saul. And Jesse brings everybody but David. Now you wonder, like, is this because Jesse's trying to protect him? Because like Jesse's like, he's seen what Saul does. Like he doesn't want his youngest kid within a 10 foot, you know, he doesn't want him within a country mile of that. Maybe. Did he forget him? Does he have like so many sons that like, I don't know, I don't, I don't even how many kids I got. Like, who knows? But we do know this is that David was left out for some reason or another that is not explained in that story, but we just know that he was. That's a curious thought. And then later, David's brothers are at the front just prior to this interchange with Goliath. And Jesse sends David to the front, wanting to find out news of the war and to send food to his brothers. He gets there and his oldest brother ridicules him in front of everybody. And you wonder, huh, something is not quite right in the house of Jesse. What's up with this? Later, when David enters into the city after conquering all these foes. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city and he's dancing before the Lord and his wife, who had fallen in love with him, Saul's daughter, publicly shames him. Now I got to tell you, you got a cat who is as successful as a guy could be at that time and space. And yet you have a father who has a certain kind of relationship with you, You've got brothers that have a certain kind of relationship with you, and you have a wife who's willing to publicly scorn you. That is not an excuse, but it tells us something about what David is remembering, about what his longings are, about the part of his story that David didn't know he didn't know. All of that implicit stuff that comes rushing to the forefront when he sees Bathsheba, and suddenly there is beauty unfurled that can speak to the my to my deepest longings the longing that i wanted to be like included with my brothers like you know maybe i wasn't going to be chosen but at least i'd be included the longing to be like loved by my brothers i didn't want to be ridiculed public the longing to be loved by a woman and that doesn't happen either the longing not to be have not to have my father-in-law throwing a spear at me then trying to kill me this is a guy who knew trauma and had parts of it that were unresolved. And that trauma will separate our capacity to remember implicitly from our capacity to remember explicitly. And then we wonder why we're having so much difficulty. And so the real key is how we create space to tell our stories such that we are paying attention to the part of the stories that are beautiful not to not pay attention to the parts that are more painful, mm. but to actually bring those so that we can avoid them, so that we can bury them. Because sometimes that's what we do. I have this painful memory. I just want to, re- I don't want to remember that because it's too painful. Mm. But what we're really trying to do is to actually invite those painful things into the present moment in order for the explicit nature of what that painful event was to be given more robust, more robust truth-telling, such that the gospel, the love of Jesus, his gaze of joy and love and affection finds you even in those spaces where I want to run like hell. I don't want to tell Jesus about this particular part of my story. I don't want to remember that because that too easily reminds me that I'm not enough, that I'm broken, mm. that there's something wrong with me. And so I'll just keep that hidden. When in fact, Jesus says, no, I want you to bring that. I want you to bring that memory in this room. Mm. So that we can look at it. And we're gonna tell a different story. You and me, and your cloud of witnesses, we're going to tell a different story. You know, it um, reminds me of a, um, you know, a, a very dear friend um, and uh, mentor, teacher, um, really somebody that impacted my life in a really big way. Um, and some of uh, 
you all might uh, know who he is from his name. He was his name was Charles Nelson Riley. He was uh, people would know him from all these game shows he was on and all this. But what people didn't the masses didn't know about him was that he was a brilliant director. He directed mm-hmm. opera. He directed mm-hmm. on Broadway. He was an amazing teacher mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, one of the most generous and um, really a genius in, in his field uh, and a dear, dear friend. Um, Kurt, you know many, I've told many mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. He's somebody that I actually hear <laughs> in my head all the time. He yeah. taught me how to be a director. He taught me how to be mm-hmm. an actor. He, you know, mm-hmm. it's amazing. I was, I was just uh, so blessed to have him mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. my life. And, and mm-hmm. um, towards the end of his life, he had gotten real sick and I went to visit him and had this amazing day. I mean, it was just, <laughs> we were laughing and telling stories. And the uh, actress Alice Ghostly came in to his house and we sat there and reminisced about stories and, and talked on and on. And, um, uh, and I was, um, it was time for me to go. And I, I told him I had to leave and, as I was walking out the front door, he, he called me back in. He said, Papa, come back, come back. And I, I went back in his room, and he just looked at me, and he said, I love you. I love you so much. And I, you know, uh, and, uh, I left that day thinking it was going to be the last time that I saw him. I called my wife, and I said, I think I just saw Charles for the last time. I mean, that's how... how um, and I think about a week had gone by, and I... Um, Charles was 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 still hanging on, and so I decided to go see him again. And I had a completely different experience on this trip. Hmm. You know, Charles, as as wonderful of a human being that he was, there was there was also um, he had some demons and some things that he battled. Um, alcohol was one of them, and he uh, he wanted me to make him a Manhattan on this day, and. Um, there's nothing I would have rather done than to have made him a drink and just sat there and listened to him tell stories. And as I went out into the other room, the uh, the nurse was there and she said, he just had his medicine and he can't have that. Um, you know, he's allowed to have one at six o'clock tonight, but not right now, he can't. And so I went in and I said, I can't make you a Manhattan, Charles, because the nurse said, and a switch went off. Hmm. And he he said very hurtful things to me hmm. about me, about my character, about all kinds of things. And I I was I was shaken. I didn't know hmm. know how to respond hmm. or what to say. Hmm. And um, hmm. and hmm. I I just kind of said I can't do it for you. And he kept kept it up and kept it up. And finally, I said I have to leave. Hmm. And I left. Hmm. And that was the last time I saw him. Hmm. Now, I don't, I, I, I tell you that story now, um, and it really hurt really mm-hmm. bad at the time. I mean, it, it hurt I can't even at imagine. the time, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't remember Charles. First of all, I don't think that was even him. I was, that was other things within him that were causing him to... Um, to say those things and do those things. But I don't choose to remember him in that moment mm-hmm. at all. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is literally somebody that I, that I think about at least weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the knowledge that he shared with me comes up in, in my work and um, anecdotes that he said. He's, he was so funny. And the joy and the, the humor mm-hmm. and the wisdom and all of those things stack so high up. And this other mm-hmm. event was, I mean, was really nothing. Right. But I had to kind of get over it, right? Right. right. Um, I, I, I immediately called some fr- mutual friends, you know, and mm-hmm. talked about it. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that was helpful. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, Pep, it's it's uh, it's a powerful story, and I know that you all can resonate with this, and you have 
similar kinds of things, especially when we experience these kinds of unexpected, kind of blindsiding traumatic moments from the people in particular that we most trust, that we are most connected to, that we see as fathers and mothers and older brothers and older sisters and our best friends, people where, where, Hmm. where we can become hurt. And implicitly, our implicit memory can have elements of those events lodged within us in such a way that I, because it's so painful, I choose not to, I don't pay attention to the memory itself explicitly because it brings up the implicit nature of it that's too difficult. And so I was really heartened to hear that you were able to talk with friends about this because one of the things that yeah. we can do is that when we tell our stories and we bring forward the traumatic elements instead of hiding them, the part of our hearts and our implicit experience that has been wounded and that feels the pathos of this can be bathed in the compassion of the sight lines, the tone of voice, the eye contact, the body language of those who are hearing us and offering us empathy. Hmm. And as such, we then find comfort, our emotional experience of those very explicitly remembered moments begins to change. And when I experience your empathy about a story of trauma that I've had, I'm actually able to exhale a little bit more and can then imagine the perpetrator in this case, Charles. I can imagine that person. I can imagine them differently. I can begin to see other parts of their life. I can see and understand what it was about them that causes them to behave as they do in that moment. And so the actual sharpness of the pain, of the shame and the wounding that takes place begins to be overshadowed and overcome by my felt sense of comfort by my friends and my attuning to and thinking differently. Now, remembering, if you will, I'm going to remember it differently. Remember it, not because the events have changed. I'm not changing, I'm not changing history, but I am changing how I am making sense of history. And therefore, I change my memory of it because it includes now your ability to say, like, that's not who Charles was. But not because we're saying, well, that's not who he was, because the reality is like that is who he was, right? Because there was a part of him that showed up on that day. That was a part of him that could show up like that. But because of your being cared for by others, it it allows you to actually heal the implicit part of your story and then tell a more robust, explicit part of your story that wraps itself around this. And you all have had the experience of, and we've had the experience of having some encounter in which we want to feel loved by God, but there's been a lot of implicit association with God and God language and God talk and going to church and pastors and priests and this and that, that implicitly feels a lot more like me running away from my wife and my raging father than it does feel like a God who loves me. And so just because you say to me, or because I read in a text, Jesus loves you, like, that doesn't really make much difference if I can't feel it in my chest. My memory is not full or real. My love of God is not full until I've been fully known explicitly and implicitly in my embodied state. And so one of the things that we're talking about here, Pepper, is... This notion of being known, of being fully loved, means that we then can bring integration of our implicit and explicit memory together so that both can be healed. And it leads then to creating beauty. So I, I like, as I hear you, like, anymore, like, I've heard you tell some of these stories about Charles, and I'm like, every time, it's, it's either, like, total laughter yeah. Or, or uh, like to the point of tears or just like amazing beauty. Like there is yeah. this sense that like, that's what I hear. And I think about how you've taken this particular painful story and continue to overlay it, not by ignoring what happened, but I actually, but by actually drawing it into the space of healing that I want all of us to know that we can have this happen for us so mm. that I'm creating beauty by actually bringing implicit and explicit memory together so that I can imagine it in my future. So that when this kind of healing takes place, when I think about imagining Charles in the future, you see, 
I'm not just going to focus my attention on how he mistreated you on that last day. No, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, they had this amazingly beautiful relationship that was even able to weather a a significant rupture Mm. because of the healing work that Pepper has done. And in that way, we go on to anticipate a future by the bringing together of my implicit and explicit memory in healing communities. I can anticipate a future that can have me thinking that even if rupture, even if trauma happens in the future, Jesus is coming for me. My friends are coming for me. I don't have to be afraid of my implicit memory getting lost because somebody is coming for me and bringing my memory along for the ride. And in so doing, what I once thought would only be a shorn off, separated, isolated, buried past is brought into my present moment for the purpose of creating beauty in the now and in the future to come. (laughs) Thank you, Kurt. Mm. I said this to you before. And, uh, you know, we kid around about it. But I hear you tell the story. And uh, it just makes me love you all the more and want to say, like, you're, you're, you're a beautiful man. Mm. And I really mean that. And I, uh, I, uh, I, want, I want you all to know that, like, you're a beautiful woman. You're a beautiful man. You're listening to this. Mm. And I want you to know that no amount of wounded, traumatized, implicit memory, of explicit memory, no amount of it is going to get in between you and the Jesus who's coming for you. Hmm. Amazing. Hmm. Well, Kurt, let's, um, before we close, let's, let's uh, talk about what we can do this week to strengthen the integration of explicit and implicit memory. Right. Well, we're going to talk next week about writing your autobiography, which will tie back into what we're talking about today. But for today, I'm going to suggest that we try something. I'm going to suggest that you all think about finding in your home, finding access to two or three, maybe even up to a dozen pictures of you when you were a child. Baby pictures, pictures of you when you were in elementary school, maybe even in middle and high school, but pictures of when you were a really young child. And I want you to get those pictures and I want you to look at them and I want you just to pay attention to what you remember when you're looking at these photos. Mm. Pay attention to what you sense and image and feel. Not just like, well, how old was I? But certainly that. But like, what were I feeling? And what was, what was the story going on at the time of that part of your life? And even in that picture. And then I want you to find one person. Find one person that you can share that picture with and say, here's a story that I want to tell you about this little girl. Mm. About this little boy. And I want you, it, it, could be a, it could be a memory of great joy. It could be a memory of great, of, of great sorrow. But I want you to pay attention to what you feel when you sense the other person receiving your memory of your picture and allowing your listener's presence to open up windows and doors for seeing that little one in ways that perhaps you haven't yet even imagined. And we'll look forward to hearing about those stories when we're able in the future. For sure. Yeah. I'll look forward to doing that this week. Be on the lookout for some pictures of a (laughs) (laughs) young pepper coming your way, Kurt. And I'll tell you all about what I was feeling. Right there. There's a young pepper. (laughs) Not quite yet ready to be picked off of that plant. It's just a young pepper. Just a sprout. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kurt. Thanks for this today. Appreciate you. Right on. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Love you. Love you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson 
Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is by Keaton Simons. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well, be known.